On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with author and podcaster Amy B. Chesler about her experience with sibling abuse, trauma, the court system, and grief. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. With me today, I have Amy B. Chesler. How are you? Um, I'm fabulous. Thank you. So for those that don't know you, I found you on Instagram. Uh, a thing came across my page or discovery, I think it was, and it was about your book, when it comes to your life, you've had a tragedy and your book is called Working for Justice. And your story is about how your uh, brother took the life of your mom and the court issues that went after and everything that went on with the family uh, throughout your whole entire life. And you were also a blogger and you also do a podcast on grief. And we're going to talk a lot about grief today. And we're going to discuss trauma, sibling abuse, and uh, court abuse. We're going to discuss uh, you being a giant Corey Feldman fan. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I told you I was going to do that, yeah. Crazy stories. I yeah, love you know, that. <laughs> I, you know, I, you know, I had my notes here. Um, so today, you know, what happened, and, and also everyone, you've, you've been on – Season seven of Something Was Wrong, which is a huge podcast. The whole season is dedicated to your story. And you will also be featured soon on a show called, a, a television show called uh, Evil Lived Here as well. So I guess before we begin anything, I guess just give us like a brief background on your, I guess a brief, a brief, brief synopsis of your book so everyone kind of knows what was going on. Okay. Um well, okay, I wrote the blurb on the back, so let me think if I can know. Um, in essence, uh, Working for Justice, One Family's Tale of Murder, Betrayal, and Healing, um, really, it's I, it's a blog to book, if you will. You know, I started a blog a long time ago um, thinking I was just trying to heal. You know, I know I, I, my major is psychology. I know I was a teacher. I know one of the tenets of healing is getting that shit out you know, however you need to. And I, as a, as an inherent writer and storyteller from a young, you know, time, forever, um, part of my healing was that. So um, it took me about 14 years to write, though, um, and to get it out and to get the right, you know, group of people behind me to believe in, my, in our story. And in essence, that the book takes readers from um, the evening of my mom's murder, which was September 25th, 2007, which actually coincidentally became National Murder Victims Remembrance Day, which means all of America and every murder victim or co-victim in the country is remembered on my mom's actual death date. I'm, like, joined by everybody, which is such a – I get goosebumps every time I say it. Um, and it, it, not because of her, just coincidental. Um, so it takes the reader from that evening um, through the – I can't – I don't want to give anything away, but the years – um, it took to convict her admittedly guilty murderer, who was my brother. Um, and he was, you know, it just, you know, I touch upon the abuse we faced over the many, many years and how what led up to it. But it's really just those years that I had to bastion myself through the legal process um, and his further abuse even after he was in jail and now even from prison. So before we get to any part of that story, things about your life, you know, everyone concentrates on, on, on this issue that happened to you and, and your family and your mom. But a thing that we've never really discussed on our show or talked about has been sibling abuse. And it's something that doesn't, you know, it's your brother. This is what siblings do. Da, 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 da. You know, this is what it is. And you're sitting there being like, this isn't 
normal. No. And you are now a mom, so you have your own perspective, and it's something that you're you're big on. Uh, you know, so when you're growing up and you're dealing with, you know, your brother who's abusive, and then you have your mom who is, as ever, people that don't know, your mom is was literally your best friend. A lot of people can say, hey, my mom is my best friend, but for you, your mom is your or was your best friend. And you have this dynamic going on within the family. Now that you are where you are, as far as sibling abuse goes, uh, you know, can you give kind of examples of, of things that were happening that are passed off as being normal mm-hmm. and when you knew that these things weren't right? And now being in the position that you are for other parents that might be dealing with things or people that are still dealing with sibling abuse or, or went through it and no one's validating their experience, uh, giving your perspective on everything now. Mm-hmm. I know that's a lot what I asked. It's hard to remember no. um, to, to, to kind of uh, walk us through this process for you. Yeah. You know, I, I might not answer it in the same way you just asked it, but um, I'm going to get to it. I mean, like, you know, I have a, you know, here's the thing about sibling abuse. It's quite interesting. Um, you, you know, we're finding terms, we're creating terms, we're deriving terms right now for a lot of things we didn't realize were, hap- were happening. But in my research for my book, I found that it's, you know, a crazy statistic that said, and I think it was like the University of Michigan and Missouri, sorry, <laughs> not to offend, but I don't remember, uh, uh, 50%, almost 50% of children are are thought to have faced sibling abuse at some point in their lives. And that that's a whopping that's a whopping statistic to think about. One in two children are abused in some way. Now, to talk about that really thoroughly, we have to talk about abuse, the term abuse in general. I've had to define that as part of, you know, this process too. A lot of the book clubs that I speak to, they're like, okay, so just get at it. What is abuse? Abuse, if you think about it, really is one person or faction or business or anything, an entity using their power over another human being in some way. It could be financial abuse. It could be emotional abuse. It could be mental abuse. It could be verbal abuse. It could be physical abuse. Um, So when they say 50% of children, I don't think they're saying 50% of children are beat up by their siblings. I think they're saying they are manipulated in some way by their sibling. Um, Sexual abuse, of course. There's all kinds of abuse. Um, And all those types of abuse do happen between siblings. Um, You know, and I, it was it was it was striking for me when I named it and wrote about it. My, I, you know, there were a few people I worried about their their opinion of the book once it came out. You know, one of them was my uncle, who is my dad's brother, because I didn't paint my dad in the best picture. He didn't deserve to be painted in a good picture, <laughs> but um, you know, and and I just didn't. I don't know. Uh, I was very. I gave intimate details of his failings and. Instead of, you know, being upset or anything, my uncle came to me and said, you know, you put words to an experience I had as a child that I never knew I went through. But I was very much abused by your dad. So that was his, that was healing for him to even see it, to know he wasn't alone. Um, And it's massive. I mean, if that many of us experience something like that, um, it's just, it's ever permeating, if you will. Um, yeah. Well, well. Also, just to defend you, when you speaking of your dad, you did. I mean, yeah, you you talked about your dad in a specific way, but you also explained your your understanding of why you know he is the way he is, and it's not like you're blaming in the sense of like this, 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 or this. You understand him. You know, not too many people go to the lengths that you did to really do that. And you did. So, uh, you know, because I can see your face here talking about it. And I'm like, you didn't do anything wrong. No, 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 no. Thank you. And I, I yeah, I don't, I, there's no guilt in, in my ultra honesty, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm the type of person, like, you know, there's a quote, like, don't fuck with the writer if you don't want to be getting, get written about kind of thing. Uh, and people who engage with me know that that's. I told, you know, I mentioned in my book, the last conversation I ever had with my dad, he passed away right after, um, uh, a couple weeks after I told him I was writing a book and he said, well, I figured you would, <laughs> um, and he encouraged me in it, but, um, 
Yeah, it's sibling abuse. I just to go back to that. Um, it is, I, I, you know, I, I, in in any big failing, in any big undertaking, and anything like that, any big change that has to happen. Um, there's always the first step is discussing and like awareness, right? We're saying this is a this is something that has to happen and change. Um, and I think this is the step we're in with that. Um, you know, I faced a ton. I faced all types of abuse at my brother's hands. I I faced physical abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, all of the above. Um, my mom unfortunately didn't see some of the worst of it. I kept because again, victimhood one of one of the ways that abuse even per- persists is the nature nature of victimhood often propagates, you know, being silent about things, feeling guilty about them, you know, and owning owning that guilt as your own. Um, and that keeps, you know, we don't report it. That's obviously a, a statistic. That's a common, you know, not reporting thing. So there were things, a lot of things I didn't report to my mom. And she wasn't oblivious to, you know, his failings either um but and she did yeah it's interesting you said now as a as a parent um well this was about to be my next question yeah and i'm going to chime in here for you so when it comes to dynamic of yourself your brother your mom you and your mom have a dynamic you and your brother have a dynamic your mom has a dynamic with him as well two different dynamics it's the triangle yeah there's a enmeshment that occurs here but for you it's in a different way than what it is for your brother and your mom and yours is buddy you know a very very close your mom's is your brother's biggest uh not not to say supporter but your brother's biggest defender yeah oh 100 yes but however, sometimes she really did. She kicked him out a lot. She was like, "Get that, get you know, you're going to treat my." She wouldn't do it necessarily when he was like advancing towards her, but if, at the most physical points which, that she witnessed, she would definitely be like, "Get out of my house and have him live in his car for three months." You know, it was. However, she'd always let him back in, and there was that enabling. But anyways, yeah. Sorry, so, there, there, so, so there was that cycle that was kind of going <laughs> on because she's also in this abusive 100%. cycle. You're all in this cycle. So now you as a mom that uh, are, are in this position with your hindsight, you've seen the devastation and everything yeah. uh, from the perspective of just what the worst things could happen here. Uh, you know, now going backwards for people out there that are, are dealing with this or dealing with maybe a child who might be exhibiting uh, the behavior of their uh parent who might be disordered might not be disordered but just really not the best how would you go backwards here in this situation and and Mm -hmm. redo things if there is even a possibility but how would you um if there were certain things that you could change what would they have been as if you were the mom in this situation um and i hope i'm being fair here Oh, yeah. No. Well, um, I mean, I think inherently in that question, there's a tiny bit of victim blaming because it's like, well, could she have changed it? However, or assuming parenting, um, what I, you know, parenting has to do a lot with things and my mom's choices. However, I have a firm belief, not everything happens for a reason, but everything happens for a thousand reasons. And I'll explain. I think that it, you know, yes, my mom, when I think back, I don't really think back, like, what could my mom have done differently? I parent differently than my mother, though. 100% I parent differently. I have taken the highlights of her parenting. That I think that she attempted with my brother, but he didn't really let her. Um, like, she had her master's in education, so she and she was a teacher. So she, like, knew how to relate properly. Um, you know, I, I definitely... Um, I'm just a more, I mean, in the 90s, you have to understand, I mean, like, things were just, I mean, you know, <laughs> you're alive in the 90s. Things were way different. All the mental health, I mean, all, everything we know, everything we say, how we speak about things are just different now. So I don't think I can say in hindsight, how could I, because it, it's not now, it's now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that wasn't what she was dealing with, or, or her resources were totally different. 
So in a way, yes, I, I was victim blaming. I'm going to to uh, circle back on that and say, um, you know, maybe people that in your mom's position, mm-hmm. and there's I know some as well, um, that they are just they're in an abuse cycle as well, and sorry. So you're basically more like, what could we, what, what tools have I found or discovered since then that would maybe perhaps cut that kind of sort of cycle off, right? Yeah, because in a way here, I guess we're discussing, you know, your mom is being abused by their child. So you're, they're stuck in an abuse cycle as well, and they don't know what to do. Everyone, yeah. and, and I guess if we think about this, or I think about this on the spot here, you know, everybody tells the parent to do this. Everybody tells the parent to do that. You've seen many shows growing up in the 90s where the child is sent to one of those, like, drill schools on Donahue and Ricky Lake or whatever the, one of those shows were. Um but in reality, it's possible, or you think about it, that parent is just in an abuse cycle as well. But we don't treat them that way Mm-mm. because nope. they're the parent and the other person is younger, but they're caught in this cycle. I've never thought about it in that way no, before. No, 100%. Um, and, you know, it's been, it's been eye-opening. Since my book came out and the podcast came out, I have gotten an exorbitant amount, exorbitant amount of women reaching out to me, specifically women, um, saying to me, Ma, you saved my life. I never thought, you know, or hearing your story, not to make it about me, but like hearing your story saved my life because I thought this was just not possible that I'm being abused by my child. That's just that nobody talks about that. No, it's not happening. Nobody, you know, but uh, the fact that I was slapped in the face by your mother's murder, and that is possible. And I see those warning signs. And my advice would be don't ignore them. You know, the issue, I read this thing recently, when, you, when you're wearing rose-colored glasses, red flags just look like flags, right? And yes, we look at our children with rose-colored glasses sometimes. We want them to be the best, most possible people we think they can be, you know, that we've seen their potential at some point. Um, I would, my suggestion would be, like, don't be afraid of those big conversations with people that you trust and feel safe with. Because those are the first steps to making changes, um, whether it's a therapist or a best friend or a family member, um, even if it's a stranger, if it's me, like, you know, any of just to know you're not alone. That's like the very first step in changing something in, in the awareness. Um, I also, um, my children are not, my daughter's a lot like me. My son is uh you know, he's, he, he's a six-year-old boy. He's got some anger. He's got, like, he has some meltdowns. He, I already know he's not like my brother. There were warning signs from almost birth that, about my brother. Unfortunately, all the resources my mom had and all the, the kind of um, statuses that existed in our lives affected and kept him on the same path of that degradation rather than becoming a better person. You know, at three, you're like, oh, be a good person. Here are your values. And my mom surely taught us that. It's just that life taught him externally those didn't get you farther um, or get didn't get him farther. He saw me always getting farther with them, which is why he abused me and my mom the most because he really did um, uh, what's the word? you know, scapegoat us for his failings, if, if you will. And, and for th- those of you who are looking for resources, I don't know what it's like in the United States, if you're a parent that's uh, dealing with this, but I know in my province in Canada, in Ontario, there's a place called Pine River. It's a Pine River Institute, and you go on a waiting list for about 12 months, and then you're accepted, and it is free of charge, and it is a wonderful place for uh, kids. They start off in the wilderness. They're only allowed to leave, and and they have to succeed at all these things to graduate, and, you know, there are therapists there. They Like, half the day is that, and then you have a group of kids that you are with – 
and uh, you know, you, at first you're a junior member, but by the time you're there a while, you become a senior member, and then you take kids under your wing, and you're, you you gain the confidence of like you're now the elder statesman at this thing until eventually you graduate, and it's free up until the age of eighteen. And these programs, hopefully, I don't know if they're in every province in Canada, but I I would hope they were. I know it's here and that there. I don't think we have anything like that. And that sounds phenomenal because I think one of the key pieces that, that kept me and my brother going down that degrading path or that path of degradation, if you will, um, was the fact that he felt alone. Like I'm not, not, I am not giving him a path. I am not saying he's not responsible and he very much ostracized himself quite a bit, um, and his actions did too. However, that was at the basis. I think everything is his attachment. You know, he was never, he was not fully attached to my mom much. Um, we had a weird enmeshed attach, attachment, of course. Um, and he was very much not attached to our dad. You know, um, that was not something we could ever count on. So, and the rest of the world kept shitting on him as far as he could perceive it. So really at the basis is this attachment. So that kind of community would build that attachment and sense of belonging that a lot of those kids and people, everybody needs that, but especially when we feel isolated and angry, I think. So when it comes to what a lot of people deal with, they eventually deal with a legal abuse when it comes to uh, post-separation, uh, divorce, and everything like that, where things are kind of dragged on. So can you explain how these things were done uh, to you in the sense of, you know, you're not the one fronting costs here, but it's an emotional cost that you were dealing with. And I guess how that, uh, I guess, tips and tricks, I guess, emotionally, um, of how to help people through the time when all of these things are being employed? Lord, well, that is such a pertinent question, especially in America. I feel like we are all, my role was, yes, I didn't have a financial stake, but I am technically, we are immediate family and, you know, people like that to a murder victim are called co-victims in America. So my perspe- perception is, first of all, there's never any justice when there's a murder that's, that's occurred. Um, a life has been stolen, That's there's no justice. However, with the legal system and the way it works um, in our country, there's also often an abuse that happens. People are like, I demand justice. Give me justice. It'll come. And we hear a verdict. We're assuming this justice has been delivered. But then we realize even when the verdict has been delivered or the sentence per se, um, it doesn't feel like we've been given justice, right? even in that. And so sometimes we as victims or co-victims, um, fraud, you know, so it's not just murder, but any sort of kind of legal battle to prove, um, civil battles, you know, like the o- Goldman suing, um, OJ Simpson. Those are all situations where legal abuse can occur. And I think even as our country kind of steps into these roles of trying to watch the legal battles, we see that the system is actually kind of designed for the people. You know, it's like they, I, I, I have a really, really weird perspective of the whole system. Um, my mom was like the happiest, the proudest American ever. She came from Israel and she was just like, I mean, only drove Ford cars. You know what I mean? Like, she was just like, um, America! Um, and she believed in the legal system. But now being entrenched in it, um, it really does, I see it protects the perpetrator, in essence. Um, it gives them power even when they're in prison. So, again, my brother, it took years to convict him because he tried. He found a bunch of loopholes. Um, and he always does. That's He's an abuser. He's a manipulator. So he, he uses those powers in any way he can. Um, he, you know, postponed hearings by firing lawyers. You know, he'd fire a lawyer, and that would give him a new lawyer, which means he would have to, that lawyer would need time to reacquaint themselves with the case. Then after a few months, he would fire that lawyer. Uh, that was a tactic. There was another tactic where um, he would make lawyers quit. 
I mean, like, he's an asshole. He will literally, he, his mouth, he, he, he just, if you, he's, he has a hair trigger, um, you know, hair trigger anger. Um, he, 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 he fired lawyers. They, they quit on him. Um, he decided a couple times to represent himself. All of these tactics extended the process for me. So, um, as we all do this, as we all step into this role as co-victim and as we all wait for trials and as we all shout for justice, my advice, sorry, it took me a long time to get to the advice. Um, my advice would be have no expectations whatsoever. You know, people are yelling, justice, it's going to happen. And then it doesn't. You just have, you can't have any expectations. You can't have expectations on timing. You can't, even when you have a hearing scheduled, don't have expectations of that hearing happening because that might change. And it's not just the person, the, the, the criminal who might be, or the perpetrator who might be the person postponing. Things happen all the time. Lawyers get sick. They have to call, you know, out, things like that. Um, so have no expectations and do every bit of mental health help uh, and self-care you possibly can just to bastion yourself internally. Because in just life in general, you can't really, you can't control the external forces. You can't control what's happening. And the legal system is like the prime example of that. So just take care of you and have no expectations. Um, and that'll kind of carry you through until it's finally over, hopefully. And when it comes to trauma, in a way you had like three, in this instance, you had three major the the issues specifically with your brother growing up you have the stuff that goes on with the the murder of your mom and then you have the court aspect of things you have these three different things and then you have a bunch more in there a lot so you have so much trauma in your life and you're sitting here and talking to me with a smile on your face people don't know it sometimes you do get you're getting tears in your eyes in, in in many instances they can't see those. I can see those. <laughs> and you're hearing this upbeat person who, for all intents and purposes, this is all devastating. How are you here in that sense? And what is the process of dealing with the trauma? You know, my process, honestly, um, right after my mom was killed, I got married. <laughs> I met a man about three months after she was murdered. Um, and although I didn't know him, my family had known his family for about four generations. So when I stepped into meeting his family very quickly, by the way, uh, trauma bonding at its finest, um, I was told stories about my parents and my mom growing up. Um, and this is one of those moments where my voice shakes and I'm getting teary eyed. But so I, I was very much, I, I trauma bonded. That was the first step of my healing. And I probably, it was definitely what set me down the rest of it. And now that I'm talking to you about it, I often like shame myself for that decision. However, I don't know if I would have stepped into this stage of empowerment if I hadn't experienced that relationship um, and known I needed different after experiencing it. Um, and, and so my process really was, you know, I, I didn't dive right in. People are like, oh, my God, you're amazing. Look how happy you are. I wish, like, all the things you've been through, but it, it wasn't immediate. It was nowhere close to immediate. And I definitely stepped back into cycles of abuse, not like my brother, not as bad. But there were things that I allowed in my marriage that, oh, my God, are not okay and definitely would never be okay with present Amy. They're not. So um, it took it took entering things that didn't serve me, you know, and then it took a lot of therapy to, to advocate for myself and be able to say properly why and how that did not serve me. Now, it's still an ongoing process for me. Um, part of the process, though, um, people who go through things like I do or I have, often it's natural to withdraw, right? It's natural to want to be like, I want to protect my heart. People, you know, people who who go through this, they have this habit, and I, I, don't, I, I don't think I only speak for myself, but I think it's natural to kind of want to protect yourself, right, and, and withdraw, protect your heart, not step into new relationships. And I'm not saying jump into them. I'm saying um, part of my learning 
came from relating to different people in new ways, and I'm learning my triggers, you know? Uh, so part of it was keeping the process of keeping my heart open. Um, I've done the majority of my healing since my divorce. So I was married for almost 10 years, and once my kids got old enough to see how bad our dynamic was, I knew I needed to advocate for myself. I got a divorce at the same year my mom got a divorce. Um, same age, I mean. We were the same age, uh, you know, single mother, two kids. Uh, it hit me pretty hard. But, or actually maybe it didn't, it's hitting me. Now that I'm healing, I'm, allow, I'm allowing myself to kind of get to that grief a little bit. Um, but really, my process took a lot of learning about myself, learning my triggers, trying to digest why I have them, and managing my responses to them. And I've seen myself grow and change immensely because of that. And part of my process also has been being open about all of this. Um, I, I guess I always say everybody has a story, but not everybody's a storyteller. Not everybody's com- comfortable in front of a crowd or whatever. Um, and I, I am. I was a teacher. You know, um, I, I thrive on hearing that I help people by telling my story. So part of my healing and my process has definitely been not only unloading in therapy, but unloading and framing things for other people to hear um, and to just kind of represent the, the co-victim community, if you will. Um, and that's really helped me strengthen and feel empowered too. And part of your healing, your service work and helping others got you to your podcast, Good Grief with, with Allie and Amy. Available, everyone, on Apple Podcasts, and you are dealing with grief, and you're dealing with grief with someone who has passed away, and you're also dealing with grief with someone who is still alive, and a lot of our listeners are dealing with grief. I lost my brother who's alive, and my my ex-husband really divorced is a grief as well, so So, um, yeah. So so a lot of our, our audience is... Is are people who are grieving their abuser who's still alive. So you now discuss grief all the time. And within the context of grieving someone that's still alive, what's your experience? How do you deal with it? And, uh, you know, because it's still, I, I, I think I saw a post of yours on social media where I think you celebrated your brother's birthday. I didn't celebrate it, but I definitely, I nodded to it for the first time. I have never been able to, so my, my son's birthday is January 21st, or I'm sorry, my brother, my son's birthday is January 20th, my brother's birthday is January 21st. I'm January so, 22nd. Oh, oh my God, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's so funny. Um, yeah, so there was, I've never really acknowledged my brother's birthday since my brother, my son was born, um, because I, I just... I compartmentalize, but I definitely slip into this funk that, that next day. So this was the first day that I actually kind of acknowledged it. He was turning 40, 40 in prison, you know, after 15 years, um, almost. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of the same. I have virtually the same advice for every topic, but this one is, and I guess I, I forgot to mention this last, but part of the process for any sort of grief or trauma I stand by the fact that it has to. Now, I said I have to publicly vomit verbal diarrhea here. <laughs> that, ooh, that, like, that, that image is awful. But, um, I, you know, I, that's part of me. I do it publicly. Um, however, that is inherent of what I think everybody has to do, not publicly. We all, rather than having that grief and, and, and like, holding on to it necessarily, or keeping it inside, or shoving it down deep, the one thing we all have to do with grief is understand it'll probably persist forever. I mean, sometimes when people are still alive, you can kind of move on. I don't know. I've lost friendships and grieved friendships, and then, you know, I don't grieve those anymore. But what I did to, to kind of get over that grief, I believe grief, trauma, everything persists if you don't get through it, 
you know, instead of kind of dancing around the subject or hopping over it, you have to dig deep into it um, and process it. Otherwise, it'll manifest in a million other different ways um, that you probably don't want. So. And when you got divorced, what was the what was your process of processing it? So I wanted to focus on um, just living authentically. You know, I I was building up this online presence. So part of it was just authentically just doing me and whatever that meant online, in my writing. Um, I got a pretty big gig writing for Scary Mommy, which is a pretty large parenting website. And they kind of let me dive into so many different topics that I really was that were festering in me during my marriage. So getting them out was amazing. Um, I, I believe in experiencing people. I believe in dating. I believe in having healthy sexual relationships. So that was definitely part of my healing as well. Um, and again, that is what I, what I said it before. You know, if you've been through abuse, it's really, really common and easy and natural I'm not saying it's bad. I'm, it's natural to slip into this kind of like self-protection mode. And um, part of my healing was not really forcing myself. I didn't really need to force myself. I was excited. But um, experiencing other people and, and, and seeing myself stretch and grow and do the things I wasn't capable of in my marriage, I did that with new people. And every time I did, it got easier and easier. And like the tough conversations I ever had or whatever are like so easy now with new people because part of it is internal for me. And also I'm just, I see how to pick new people or surround myself with new people um, and let people in differently. So um, yeah, I also am doing a live piece on a show this weekend, um, a a Zoom show. (laughs) It's all about sex post-divorce. So that's been part of the fun. I'm writing an erotica book. And that was, I mean, you know, it's all been, it's all been transformative. <laughs> so for people that will soon read your book, <laughs> the explanation of a lot of, of what you're talking about here, at least the background on this stuff uh, is in the book as far as, yeah. yes, as far as, you know, your conversation with your mom and sex and all of those things and how you were brought up and how you were brought up with that is extremely healthy. Uh, yeah. Where a lot of families, it's not like a thing, but in, for you guys, you know, that was a thing and your, your view on that. If people, when people read your book, uh, working for justice, uh, you can read about that. And yeah. Part of my mission in all of this, you know, I've been like, I have a lot of missions, but one of them is to revive my mom. And I really do think she was a fabulous parent. And and a lot of people, when these things happen, they'll be like, what about the parents? What, how, what type of parents were they? Well, she was a fabulous parent. And there were a lot of tenants of her parenting that were brilliant um, and a little bit of ahead of her time, too. Um, so I, even when I'm talking about erotica or I'm talking about sex or I'm learning through sex or whatever, I'm actually honoring my mom. I know that sounds really weird, but um, it's, and I I might've been thus far pigeonholed a little bit into the true crime realm. You know, people need to know that true crime needs to be as rich as every other um, arena or genre. You know, we need representation where it's like, these are whole human beings, you know, Um, not just a list of facts about their murder. Um, And yeah, it's just a, I don't know. I think I'm still on mission, but it shocks people sometimes. <laughs> so there's a quote here I read. It's from you. Oh, cool. Uh, to live in fear <laughs> is to not live at all. The most I can do is keep living and keep fighting. Mm. So for you, you know, a lot of people in who listen to the show, they still live in fear. And a lot of the time when it comes to abuse and your abuser they say the best way to play the game in the aftermath after everything is over is to not fight Mm. i think another tenet of this all is and that that approach is the people will a lot believe a lot of people believe you need to forgive people who have hurt you right forgive your abuser so you can move on i don't believe in that that's some bullshit um in essence, I don't. I I I believe I owe forgiveness to myself, 
because, you know, I have some victim blame. I, I blame myself a little bit. You know, that's inherent in victimhood sometimes, like I said before. I think, you know, they put this level of shame so you keep quiet, and that is guilt in essence. Um, so I've forgiven myself for allowing some of the things that he did. Um, and I've forgiven my mom because there's that enmeshment level, and, and, and there were things that happened in our relationship in our family that shouldn't have happened or been allowed to a certain degree. Not that she kind of allowed it, but there was the, I definitely, I just, whether I needed to forgive her or not, I forgave her, but I will never forgive my brother and I don't need to. And I think that's where people get arrested in that thing. They're like, well, I got to forgive him. I got to let it go. I got to no, because then that's putting you, that's putting all of their needs way before yours after they've abused you. Hell no. Um, I, I need to protect my kids and myself more than anything in this situation. Um, so I don't, yeah, that's, that's. So for you in a lot of ways, fighting is fighting for my own self advocacy, fighting in a sense of, or, or, and even with the trauma aspect of things, you know, that you're not focusing on the other person that you're fighting and advocating for your own self discovery. Yes. Um, also, you know, it quite literally still fighting. Um, you know, I wrote my book. It came out April 6th. April 16th, 10 days later, I got my first parole hearing notice. I wrote in the book that it wasn't going to happen for another year or so. I had no clue. I got that hearing notice, um, and that was a devastating hearing. It was absolutely shocking what happened and how it happened, and it's all recorded. So, um, But in essence, he, he threatened my life. He threatened my kid's life. He, on camera, admitted to stabbing 90 more people since being in prison. I mean, he just went off. Um, and then at the end he said, so do I have any extra powers in COVID? I heard there are some, you know, there's a little, because yeah, you can postpone your parole hearing. You know, right now we would give you, we would tell you how many more years you'd have, or we'd tell you, you could have parole. Sir, from what you just said, you would get 15 more fucking years. Like that's what they said. But yes, you do have the power to postpone your hearing for six months, a year or two months or two years. And so he said, cool, I'll see you guys in two years. And then that was the moment where I was supposed to give my victim statement for the first time ever. Um, and he said, do I have to listen? And they said, not legally, no. And he got up and walked out. So um, I literally, I, and I started bawling. And I was like, I don't want to talk now if he's not going to hear. And they said, no, 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 we need to hear your statement. It needs to be on the record. Um, and he'll get a copy of this transcript eventually. So whether he chooses to read it or not. But, so I literally need to fight for the rest of my life. People don't realize, oh, he's gone and Okay, 15 to life. Fabulous. He's in there for life. No, no, no. I have to start fighting. In the state of California, they have to serve up to 80 per, 85% of their term before they start the parole hearing. So technically, I had to start fighting, um, you know, not like 13 years after my mom's murder to keep him in prison. And as long as he's alive and as long as I'm alive or, or as long as I'm alive, I will have to keep fighting. So quite literally, I will keep fighting to keep him in prison. And that is our every murder victim's life path, co-victim's life path. And if you have any words of wisdom or advice for everyone who is listening uh, from your experience of everything, what would it be? At the base of things, I think the first most important thing is therapy. And I don't necessarily mean talk therapy or one-on-one -on -one talk therapy, I believe in therapeutic practices. Um, if that is one-on-one -on -one talk therapy, if it's a group therapy session, if it's, uh, I mean, a support group, if it's even uh, acupuncture, whatever the therapy you physically need to do, there needs to be actionable steps taken to diffuse your trauma in some way. Otherwise, you are hanging on to it, 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 I mean, it manifests, I believe, I honestly believe things like this manifest into physical health problems. You know, obviously we know stress is related to heart attacks. We know, I believe it's honestly related to like cancers and things like that. So I truly believe digging deep and, and, and trying to digest some of that trauma is your greatest responsibility so you can live as healthy of a life as possible. Um, uh, shit happens. And that does not, I do not mean to say that to belittle what you've been through 
or what I've been through or what anybody's been through. I don't even like when I talk about my mom's death, I don't like when people are like, oh, my God, I can't believe I don't know what I've like, do. How did you survive? Um, Because in essence, we all have traumas and you can't really quantify or qualify them necessarily because people go through things differently and they digest things differently. You just got to digest them. You have to. Um, writing, singing, dancing, acting, shouting from the rooftop, shooting guns safely. I mean, like, whatever it is, get it. Get it out. Well, Amy B. Chesler, <laughs> thank you for being on the show. Um, everyone can find your book, Working for Justice, on Amazon. They can search Apple Podcasts or all podcasts, uh, Good Grief with Ali and Amy. People can listen to your story. It's Something Was Wrong Season 7 as well. And in the coming weeks, you will be on the television show Evil Lived Here. And you have Instagram. You have a Twitter. Do you have anything else where people can reach you? I'll put all of the links in our in our show notes. It's pretty easy. Yeah, I put them in there. But um, it's pretty easy on across all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and um, Instagram. I'm just at Amy B. Chesler. You know, I am actually looking to to start a sibling abuse support group, but outside of that, I just love um, I love the community I'm building. I love the support system that we're kind of weaving throughout my channels, and I, I just yeah, it's important that we we know we're not alone. Um, another thing, if people are listening and this story really hit home in a in a very specific way, there is a great Facebook group called um, Children of Murdered Parents, um, and I. You know, it sounds crazy to say that, but a lot of people I've mentioned this to are like, wow, I do. It's either they know someone or they specifically are. So um, that's been a really great resource for me. I should have mentioned that before. But, um, yeah, that's not affiliated to me. I'm just plugging it. Um, Besides that, no. Uh, Email me at hello at amybchessler.com, too. That's all. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here and talking with me, talking with every all of our, our audience. Uh, everyone appreciates what you did today, and uh, just thank you for your experience and wealth of of knowledge to help people through. And valid, and most importantly, validation for what everyone has has gone through. So thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the ampli- amplification, the support, and especially the fact that you dug through my book. That is, uh, yeah, thank you very much. I walked a lot in the last week since I talked to you. So I had the headphones on the whole entire time. There you go. There you go. Everyone also available on Audible is yes. how I listen to it as well. I should mention though, because a lot of people who find me through podcasts um, often are upset when they realize it's not me narrating it. Um, and that was, I didn't, they didn't offer for me to narrate it, but I really never wanted to because that I could, there's no way. <laughs> I've cried too much. But so just a heads up. Well, I like the person who narrated, so ah! yeah. Oh, I loved her. Yeah. She's she now is my follower on Facebook. She reached out and actually said that the story hit like home too, and that it just moved her so deeply. So I felt really connected. It was some by somebody who cares about the story, so that meant a lot. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, from myself and Corey Feldman's biggest fan, <laughs> Amy. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that I'm I'm gonna take that joke and drive it into the ground. Hold on, hold on. I have to, to my credit, I do explain in my book that he eventually was my boss. Yes. So that obsession turned into not a career, uh, a, a mild job. You became my, his webmaster for his I website. I webmaster at 17 and like traipsed through the valley with Corey Feldman and his weird bandmates. <laughs> it was, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast that's an, uh, I'd love to do that one um, that podcast would be called Webmasters to the Stars <laughs> that would actually be really interesting anyway, <laughs> anyway in one moment but uh, yeah you're funny thank you very much I appreciate you and before we end off our show, if you want to be a guest on our Survivor Story episodes, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. At the top of the page, there will be a button there that says Guest Form. You click on that button. There's a lot of instructions. And you take those instructions. You read them. 
make sure you read them so you know the format that we are looking for for you to send everything in. And then you can either use the guest form on our page there, or you can send everything to NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. And also at NarcissistApocalypse.com, not the Gmail, but at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we have a support group button at the top of the page. And when you click on that support group button, it takes you to our very own safe and safe and our safe social network. And at our safe social network, we have forum boards for you to post on, for people to interact with you, to get support that you need, validation. We also have integrated Zoom support meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And we have a Thursday afternoon group every other Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So for those of you in Europe who are looking to uh, join one of these groups. There's now a group at around your dinner time uh, for you to join every other Thursday. And also in our support groups, we have ad-free episodes. We've had, we have episodes that never made it to air. We have, you know, sometimes we have closure nights. We have uh, different types of evenings like that where we have meditation nights as well. And if you just want to support the show, the best thing to do is just join our support group, which you can do at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, press the support group button. And if you need even more support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers you an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you are experiencing, and they can connect you with local resources like shelters too. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource today. And once again, thank you for listening to the show. A big thank you to Amy for being a guest on our show. And now for myself and Amy... We both hope you all have a good night.